You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. In 1897, J.P. Morgan, already a financial and railroad powerhouse, decided to get into a new industry, steel. He had received a proposal from a lawyer, Albert Gary, to put together several steel companies into one. Gary said he needed Morgan because one of the companies in the way was Carnegie Steel, huge, powerful, the U.S.'s largest steel company, behind the construction of the new skyscraper buildings, powerful naval ships, and of course, building tracks of railroads across the country and the world. Carnegie Steel sold the metal. Others made products out of it, and he raked in a fortune doing so. Morgan said, fantastic idea, but I don't like your client. He's a gambler. I'll do it, Gary, but I'll work with you. Morgan was insistent, a man that I do not trust could not get money from me on all the bonds of Christendom. But Gary, I'll work with you. Morgan was a gigantic figure in American commerce, and while normally one stays with their client, Gary agreed. And Gary and Morgan formed Federal Steel in 1898, and it became, by acquisition, the second largest steel company in the U.S., second only to Carnegie. And they immediately made approaches to Carnegie about selling. Andrew Carnegie would not do it. So Gary, now in charge of this company, decided to pressure him. Carnegie's customers, like the wire and cable companies, just simply canceled their contracts with Carnegie Steel in an effort to choke him. They'd manufacture their own steel, he said. Carnegie immediately saw what was going on. He telegraphed from Scotland, his ancestral home, where he was living at the time. Crisis has arised. Prompt action required. Start manufacturing steel products. See, Carnegie thus far had held off making things such as nails or railroad ties or things like that. He just made the metal. Now he was going to get into finished products. And he had the money and the infrastructure to do it. Immediately start making hoop rod, and wire and nail mills. Have no fear, he told the employees of the number one company. Victory certain. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Carnegie would go farther to punish his opponents in this new business war. If Morgan was going into steel, Carnegie would live one of his dreams and go into railroads. He always wanted to build his own private rail from Pittsburgh to eastern markets. Why should he have to pay railroads? Reach those towns like Newark, New York, Philadelphia. Morgan's now scared. (laughs) He really bit off a lot here. He doesn't want a war in an area outside of his expertise. Carnegie could probably, probably destroy federal steel in in such a war. He sends Gary to talk to Carnegie's right-hand man, Charles Schwab. Schwab is one of these folks that would have been well-known at this time who hasn't carried over into history. There's not a connection to today's uh, consumer financial uh, house, in case you're wondering. Uh, but he was a significant entrepreneur and businessman at the time. Gary tries to get Schwab to cooperate, and Schwab listens. Would Carnegie be interested in selling? If so, what is Carnegie's price? Schwab didn't know. Carnegie's deal was so enormous, it would be hard to even fathom a price. And Carnegie was so particular about it that He was even hesitant to raise the issue with Carnegie himself. But then again, Carnegie had often talked about retirement and had been living outside the United States. So at the golf course, Schwab decides to raise the matter. Schwab relayed Morgan's offer to end it all and pay a fee. Carnegie thought for a second, grabbed a slip of paper, and wrote down, $400 million. It was almost like he was writing one of the early science fiction novels of his time. That amount of money, I mean, it would be just expressed in the wages of workers and the differences between what a laborer's paid today and a laborer's paid then and how much you'd have to work. You're talking about $69 billion. But really, it's much, much more because there just wasn't that many sources of money at the time as there is today. So it also meant something else. Carnegie would be the world's richest man. And you might say, richer than J.P. Morgan? Yes. J.P. Morgan's putting together a deal like this, not paying out of his own funds. Out of this $400 million price, Carnegie would get $223 million himself. Something to know about J.P. Morgan. He didn't haggle. He got a man's price, and he paid it. If it was satisfactory, and if it was not, 
He said no deal and moved on. Now, Gary brings back Carnegie's price of $400 million, and he's thinking that Morgan's not going to accept this. This is a lot of money. Morgan says, we'll do it. Gary says, are you sure? I mean, it's probably overvaluing. Are we really going to haggle over a few scores of millions of dollars? Or are we going to get this deal done? So Morgan and Carnegie, Matt Morgan actually goes to Carnegie's mansion, which is actually, and this is true of so many things with Carnegie, he's actually a little bit away from the rest of the rich of New York, and he's one of the first people to move in the upper, more the Upper East Side of New York City. Morgan visits his mansion and signs the deal, and U.S. Steel is born. At the same time, he's also going to buy some steel assets from Rockefeller to create this conglomerate. It's a few years later, when Carnegie and Morgan meet on a golf course, and Carnegie, now retired, tells Morgan, He made one mistake. What was that? Morgan asks. I should have asked for $100 million more. You would have got it if you had, Morgan replies. It was a long trip for Andrew Carnegie. He hadn't started out rich like this. And in doing research for my series on the Ark of Commerce, I had uncovered a bunch of um, information on this important American entrepreneur, billionaire, some might say fat cat, some might say strike breaker, some might say the inspiration for all the philanthropy of today in America. There's so many ways you could describe this individual. I didn't get a chance to use it in that large series. And so um, here is a little bit of his story. Andrew Carnegie was a bobbin boy in a Pittsburgh cotton mill, product of child labor. His big break came when he discovered a gift for quickly deciphering Morse code of the telegraph. I talked about in the Ark of Commerce 1 about how important the telegraph was in so many of the tech entrepreneurs of the 19th century. Samuel Morse, Thomas Edison, and now Andrew Carnegie got the success from the telegraph. His talent caught the eye of an administrator of the Pennsylvania Railroad, who made Carnegie his personal telegraph operator. But he did more. He offered him the opportunity to buy stock in a delivery company. That prospered and launched Carnegie on the road to riches. As his wealth grew, Carnegie developed a personal credo that which he referred to as his gospel of wealth. He outlined his philosophy in a letter which he wrote to himself in 1868 when he was 33. I propose to take an income no greater than 50,000 per annum. 700, 800,000 these days, difficult to calculate, a lot of money. Beyond this, I never I need never earn, make no effort to increase my fortune, but spend the surplus each year for benevolent purposes. Man must have an idol, and the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. I will resign business at thirty five, 
but during these ensuing years, I wish to spend the afternoons in receiving instruction and in reading systematically. He didn't retire at 35. He went on investing and profiting from numerous businesses. In 1901, he sold his interest to J.P. Morgan and became America's richest man. Yeah, oddly enough, J.P. Morgan was not America's richest man. He had control of finances that exerted a lot. But um, it's an interesting thing. One of the things um, upon his death, I believe it's it's William James Bryan or one of these uh, critics of Morgan that says, in the end of the day, he wasn't even that rich. <laughs> but anyway, on arriving in Allegheny City, there were four of us, father, mother, my younger brother, and myself. My father entered a cotton factory. I soon followed and served as a bobbin boy, and this is how I began my preparation for subsequent apprenticeship as a businessman. I received $1.20 a week and was then just about 12 years old. For a lad of 12 to rise and breakfast every morning, except the blessed Sunday morning, and go into the streets and find his way to the factory and begin work while it was still dark outside, and not be released until after the darkness came in the evening, 45 minutes interval only being allowed at noon, was a terrible task. We talked about a previous episode about how 19th century, 20th century, America was powered on child labor. And, look, I mean... We can make some arguments. Uh, population was different. Um, there wasn't mechanization and electricity hadn't arrived in, in the scale needed yet for production and all of these arguments you could make. But it's also a very harrowing experience. We talked about it on that podcast. We read a story by Jack London about the boy and get up every morning, still dark outside, go not to school, but to work at the factory. A change soon came, though, for Andrew Carnegie, for a kind old Scotsman who knew some of our relatives made bobbins and took me into his factory before I was 13. Here for a time it was even worse than in the cotton factory because I was set to fire a boiler in the cellar and actually to run the small steam engine which drove the machinery. The firing of the boiler was all right, for fortunately we did not use the coal but refuse wooden chips. And I always like to work in wood, but the responsibility of keeping the water right in running the engine and the danger of my making a mistake and blowing the whole factory to pieces caused too great a strain. And I often awoke and found myself sitting up in bed trying to trying the steam gauges. But I never told them at home I was having a hard tussle. No, no, everything must be bright to them. I have to pop in here because this, I think, raises an interesting question. But Andrew Carnegie's story, it's always been seen as the key American growth story, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. But really, Carnegie's describing here some of the awful labor conditions that many Americans had to face. And really, if not for kind of the luck of the draw, somebody noticing him, he doesn't get to where he is at all. He makes other good decisions down the line. Yes, we get it. But it's interesting that in Andrew Carnegie's story, I see, first of all, how terrible labor conditions were for people and how right it was to correct as many of those as we could. I obtained a situation as a messenger boy in the telegraph office of the Pits of Pittsburgh when I was 14. Here I entered a new world amid books, newspapers, pencils, pen and ink and writing pads in a clean office. 
bright windows and the literary atmosphere. I was the happiest boy alive. We talked about how the telegraph was the technical marvel of the 19th century and telegraph operators, Edison, Samuel Morse, now Andrew Carnegie, became the innovators and entrepreneurs of their time. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Every ambitious messenger boy wants to become an operator. And before the operators arrive in the early mornings, boys slipped into the instruments and practice. I was one of them, and soon were able to talk to the boys in the other offices along the line who were also practicing the Morse code. Having a sensitive ear for sound, I soon learned to take messages by ear, which was then very uncommon. I think only two persons in the United States could then do it. Now every operator takes by ear. So easy it is to follow and do what any other boy can if you only have to. This brought me into notice. It was innovative at the time. And finally, I became an operator and received to me the enormous sum of $25 per month, 300 per year. The Pennsylvania Railroad shortly after this was completed to Pittsburgh. And that genius, Thomas A. Scott, was its superintendent. He often came to the telegraph office to talk to his chief. And I became known to him in this way. When that great railway system put up a wire of its own, he asked me to be its clerk and operator. So I left the telegraph office, in which there is great danger that a young man may be permanently buried, as it were. And then I became connected with the railways. The new appointment was accompanied by what, to me, seemed a tremendous increase of salary from 25 to $35 per month. I used to wonder on earth what Mr. Scott who was receiving $125 per month, could do with so much money. I remained for 13 years in the service of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company and was at last superintendent of the Pittsburgh Division, successor to Mr. Scott, who rose to the office of vice president. One day he asked me if I had or could find $500 to invest. Here, the business instinct came into play. I felt that as the door was open for a business investment with my chief, It would be willful flying in the face of providence if I did not jump at it. I answered promptly, yes, sir, I think I can. Very well, he said, get it. A man has just died who owns 10 shares in the Adams Express Company, which I want you to buy. It cost you $50 per share, and I can't help you, and I can help you with a little balance if you cannot raise it all. The available assets of my whole family were not $500, but there was one member of the family whose ability, pluck, and resource never failed us, and I felt sure the money could be raised somehow or other by my mother. The matter was laid before the Council of Three that night, and the oracle spoke. Must be done. Mortgage our house. I will take the steamer in the morning for Ohio and see Uncle and asked him to arrange it. 
I am sure he can. This was done. Of course, her visit was successful. Where did she ever fail? This is Carnegie writing still. The money was procured, paid over, 10 shares of Adam Express Company stock was mine, but no one knew our little home had been mortgaged. I'm sure Mr. Scott, if he knew, would lend us the money, but we were not going to express the impoverished condition of the family. Adams Express stock then paid monthly dividends of 1%, and the first check for $5 arrived. I can see it now, and I will remember the signature of J.C. Babick, cashier, who wrote a big John Hancock hand. The next day being Sunday, we boys, myself, and ever-constant companions took our usual Sunday afternoon stroll in the country, and sitting down in the woods, I showed him this check for $5 and said, Eureka, we have found it. Here was something new to all of us, for none of us had ever received anything but from toil. A return from capital was something strange and new. How can money make money? Attention for me, the mysterious golden visitor should come. Led much speculation on the part of the young fellows, and I was for the first time hailed as a capitalist. So Andrew Carnegie writes, but he does more, you know, Andrew Carnegie decides that he's only going to work till 35. He's only going to make 150000 per year, which is like a million dollars now, no more. And then the rest of it, he will donate to charity. He has to work well past 35. And so we know our history. Andrew Carnegie becomes head of the largest steel company in the U.S. and supplies the world by 1900. Um, that steel company is producing more than the British, all of the British steel firms. He also will become the model of philanthropy. A newspaper article of his time says he has given to Pittsburgh three million to support the library and art gallery. To Braddock, a nearby town, a library, and a half million in building the Johnstown Library to 300000 And a half million dollars to the Johnstown Library, 300000 to the State College Library, 10000 to Chicago University, $3 million for scholarships, to his native Scotland, various charities, $1.5 million. Carnegie opened his first steel mill, steel mill in 1875, and it would build quick. He would really hit at the time. The railroads were expanding. America was in greater need of metal. And he's writing at the time that he is in favor of the burgeoning trade union movement in America. The right of the working man to combine and to form trades union is unions is no less sacred than the right of the manufacturer to enter into associations and conferences with his fellows. And it must sooner or later be conceded, he writes in Farm Magazine in 1886. Now, it's not just a defense of the working man. He's also trying to equate it to what essentially are trusts or monopoly, potential monopoly practices, businesses communicating with each other about prices and the like. It only takes months for this to be tested. And he makes a demand that laborers at his original steel mill, the Edgar Thompson Works in Braddock, Pennsylvania, return to 12-hour ships and to be paid on a sliding scale that tied their wages directly to the price of steel. Workers walk off the job in protest. They're forced to give in after five months without a paycheck. But things really 
heat up in Homestead, Pennsylvania, where he had acquired a factory. And I talked about this in an earlier podcast, um, 1890 scrapbook that I did for the Patreon site. Um, and by the way, at patreon.com slash MHCBUIP, I have my three scrapbooks on the 1890. They're going to be a future episode. But here it is. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. In 1892, the Amalgamated Iron and Steel Workers, the AA, set off in a labor dispute with Carnegie Steel, particularly about the plant in Homestead, Pennsylvania. It wasn't just about money. It was about working hours. It was about workload levels. It was about lowering work speed to a safe level. This was an anathema to the Carnegie Steel Company. They could tolerate or had to tolerate that these workers had bound together in a union, and they were willing to sit at a table and listen and collectively bargain, okay, if the workers want one person to talk instead of 3,000, we'll, we'll hear them out. They were not interested in giving away too much and not interested in talking about things that didn't have anything to do with what they would normally negotiate with a worker, their wages. Carnegie Steel's manager Frick says, how about a 22% decrease? That was not a negotiation. That's not the way to start a union negotiation then or now. Carnegie and Frick were out to break the union, simply nothing else, to have the workers run and, under the threat of losing jobs, leave their union and come running back to Carnegie Steel. Carnegie said to Frick in a letter, the firm has decided that the works will be non-union by the end of the year. So when the last agreement with the union expired, Frick locks the doors, locks the workers out of a plate mill and an open hearth furnace. Barbed wire was set up around the factory and snipers were set up where workers would come to be employed. This was their workplace and now it looked like an armed fortress. Fort Frick is what they called it. All 3,800 unionized workers were then fired and scabs were brought in. This added to not only to labor tensions, but also to racial tensions because some of them were African-Americans brought in from the South. Not only that, 300 Pinkerton 
detectives, really guards, were hired to keep order. But at Homestead, before they could get there, the workers knew how they were going to arrive by boat up the river, and thousands of workers arrived at the docks, prevented the boat from landing. Then, when eventually Pinkerton guards got out, the workers and the Pinkerton guards began exchanging fire. The Pinkertons surrendered to the workers and were allowed to escape only to go to the local prison and then sent on a train away. The workers had won and they occupied and took over the steel mill. That was until the Pennsylvania governor sent the militia in, 8,500 soldiers, and a week later they secured the plant and brought in scabs. Workers got sympathy from the public for most part of this strike until an anarchist who was not even in the Union tried to assassinate Frank. After that, criminal charges were levied against the heads of the Union effort, and by November, the Union was broken. Twelve-hour days were established, and reduced wages were the result. Here's how PBS describes it, which I think is interesting. Genius and naive, while graspy and ruthless. Andrew Carnegie personally embodied the contradictions that divided America in the Gilded Age. He saw himself as a hero, yet crushed. He saw himself as a hero of the working people, yet crushed their unions. The richest man in America railed against privilege. And I don't think it's just contradictions of the Gilded Age. I think these are questions we are wrestling with today, particularly as technology companies have, you know, and I'll say Google, I'll say Microsoft, I'll say, I mean, increasingly seeing some smaller ones like Salesforce.com, whatever, just become so large that they're giant entities, just like Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Morgan were in the industries they were in. And they're wrestling with the same we're all wrestling with the same exact um, questions as you saw in Carnegie. His Carnegie Foundation still exists, over a billion in endowments. And it's been an influence on others. In 1889, he writes the Gospel of Wealth and says that personal wealth you know, of the rich must be given to the poor. And there are libraries all across America that receive Carnegie grants. I mean, he's responsible, really, for the public library movement broadly in America. Millions of dollars, libraries all across the country. Um, Some are located in places where he had business interests or personal connections, like the ones we talked about in Pennsylvania or in Scotland. But eventually, he expanded nearly 1,700 of the libraries were located across the United States, major cities, and tiny towns. There are Carnegie libraries in New York and Chicago, but also in Talladega, Alabama, and Thermopolis, Wyoming. There was a lone branch in Hawaii. Several other Carnegie libraries were erected in Canada, England, Ireland, also in the Caribbean, South Africa, Australia, and even the Pacific island of Fiji. There's more than that. 
Carnegie, who was a proponent of world peace, who was against the American imperialism expansion against the run-up to the Spanish-American War and the acquisition of territories, his his legacy endowments today provide for peace. The foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, is the owner of the Palace of Peace at The Hague. There are regular routine meetings of disputes between countries being resolved. There's one, I just looked in their docket. There's a couple of African countries, um, Democratic Republic of the Congo and Uganda who have disputes. There are um, disputes between Central American con- countries. The Organization of American States Building is funded by the Carnegie Foundation. His foundation has universities in Pittsburgh and in Scotland. And of course, before he sold his company, he built Carnegie Hall in 1890. And it's interesting. And you see this. You see Zuckerberg. You see Gates. You see other people, just as controversial as time at times, who are, the again, the model of philanthropy in our age. It doesn't mean there aren't questions. And there were then. A Detroit labor official, C.H. Johnson, said Carnegie ought to have distributed his money among his employees while he was making it. It's a common criticism. You know, and on one hand, you can look at philanthropy like you make your money and then you give it later. There's a lot of people looking at There's a, There's an interesting blog piece I read by Michael Looney Libes, L-I-B-E-S. I hope I said that right. Um, he is the founder of Fledge, a conscious company incubator. And his, his question, which is interesting, is whether it's possible to combine the social good of philanthropy with the act of doing business, specifically for investors, whether it's possible to do good while providing a reasonable return on investment. He brings up companies like Ben & Jerry's Zipcar, Whole Foods, even though you know they might be acquired by larger companies. Mission-driven companies aiming for a positive impact as well as profits. If someone wants to be a philanthropist, maybe they should be doing it during the act of earning a dollar instead of later in life. I want to thank you for listening. A note, this is an airwave media podcast, so we've got lots of other good shows on the network that I'm a part of. Uh, one that I want to point out is Ben Franklin's World. I don't know if you've given a listen to it. Now, until we joined up in the network, I had been a little remiss in listening to this excellent podcast. But what Ben Franklin's World does is give you kind of the setting, right? Um, all of that extra background information. What was it like to be in Ben Franklin's World? There's an excellent podcast episode about British merchant ships and what they were like. And uh, how they achieve their goals and different designs and um, really interesting stuff. Um, there is a another episode about the slave trade and what life was like for people of color in Louisiana in particular. And, uh, and particularly during the French colonial period. And that's quite interesting. So you want to give that a listen. Part of Airwave Media Network, 
My website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening.